You can be seated, and as you're finding a, a seat, you will dismiss our school-age kids to head to the back. As they continue to learn, um, I will, as they're moving out, just bring your attention as parents. If you've got some of those kiddos that are headed back, that um, we like to communicate with you as well and give you information on what they're learning so you can partner uh, with us, or us with you, rather, um, and discipling your kiddos. It's, uh, it's our eight-year anniversary, and, uh, and we normally don't make this, this huge deal of this. You know, I know some places probably do. Like, the extent is going to be um, cupcakes after the service. Um, don't make a mess. And, um, uh, or we'll have to clean it. And uh, we'll, get, we'll get emails on Tuesday morning. And... Um, uh, and then tonight at our uh, missional community on-ramp, um, we're doing uh, Chipotle. So that's, that's a big move for us, right? So uh, even if you don't want to be missional, come eat Chipotle. And um, No, so eight years ago, uh, just a brief kind of history. I know a lot of you are, are new, and again, this is, it's, it's worth me telling because it's part of my story and what God has done, and it's part of our story as as we're part of God's redemptive plan in the world, and certainly I don't want you to take this as we're kind of trying to toot our own horn, that is certainly not the, not the case if it was not for God um, working through all of our mistakes, and we've made a bunch of them, um, we certainly wouldn't be here. But uh, a little over eight years ago, we, uh, 10 or 12 years ago, I really felt the call to plant a church, and as that time was kind of coming um, we were looking for a place to plant, and uh, Shreveport, Bozier was not on our list, um, but we came here, I came here to raise funds, I used to serve at a different church in the area, and uh, one thing after another, really felt God calling us here, so we packed up and moved from Dallas, um, back here, and some of the other guys were serving in other churches, and they resigned their positions, and kind of moved with us, and uh, we started praying about what God might start here. And uh, it was, we didn't know what we were doing. None of us had any real experience in church planting. It's kind of like reading the book about driving and actually driving, how those two are really different things. It's good to know where the brake and the gas pedals are. Um, it's also good for you to practice doing it. Those of you who've taught your teenagers how to do that, you know exactly what that might be like. So we'd read a lot, but we'd never done it. And we hit the ground running and we made a lot of mistakes. Uh, well, again, we've seen God do some really cool things. Our DNA has really always been the same from the beginning. We wanted to do life and ministry together as a family. Um, not in this, I came from a, uh, you know, borderline megachurch in the Dallas area. And as much as we tried to do this, it was just literally impossible to just really know people. We didn't want just religious people who do, um, who do what was right, but we wanted to be this family who were being made into the likeness of Christ. And we wanted to emphasize the Word of God, and we wanted to talk about the Word, and we wanted to see the Holy Spirit start changing us from the inside out. And we wanted everyone to understand their missional calling, for everyone to understand their calling and utilize their spiritual gifts to extend God's kingdom. No one sitting on the bench, no one... No just few that were standing up and doing, you know, these, uh, the, the clergy doing all the work of the ministry, but that we would kind of do this together. And again, we didn't pull these ideas out of just thin air. This is what scripture talks about again and again. 
It was so inspiring during that season of transition. We would read the book of Acts again and again and again and see what God could do through the early church and what God could continue to do even through our church. Uh, I have a picture of our first meeting. Like I said, we didn't really know what we were doing. Um, we met at this, uh, uh, at this warehouse uh, off of uh, Texas Street, uh, right across from the David Motel for nicer people. Um, and uh, and it, no air condition. It was so hot. It was at the end of May. Everyone was pouring sweat. And I was like, okay, so I don't really know what I'm doing here. Um, and some people still stayed around. And uh, I kind of called us all to this one thing, that we're going to ask you to give more than you've ever given and to serve more sacrificially than you've ever served. And uh, we introduced this idea of us being a rescue ship and not a cruise ship. Like the church as an institution or an organization was never really meant to be about just, ext uh, just extolling like religious goods and services to the people who showed up and so that we could all leave here just a little happier than we came in or a little smarter. It was about us covenanting together to be on mission for God in our city. And so that's what we hope to do. We started praying that God would send laborers. Um, Jason showed up as an answer to that prayer and several others, several of you showed up in those first couple years, and we needed you desperately, and God has used you in an incredible way. I knew if this was going to work, it was going to take a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, and I mean that literally. If you've been here very long, you've done all three of those. You've, you've bled, you've sweat with us, and you've cried. Um, if you haven't, just come, uh, just come help us this summer, unload the cargo trailer in August, right? And, uh, and, and you're sweating. We call them three-shirt Sundays. Yeah, you wear a shirt, sweat through it, you got to change before service. And then you sweat through the next, we got to change before you go home. Three-shirt Sundays. Um, you've served in kids. Uh, we've moved, we moved, at one point in our journey, we had moved four locations four times in five years. And uh, God just did some incredible things. And as I think about it, just the faithfulness of God and where we're at right now, and God is opening up a new season for us. And as I was just thanking him for what he's done, and I was looking at pictures of people who've come and stayed with us a little bit and gone on to do some incredible things outside of this church, and we've planted some churches, and we've helped send missionaries out, and Right now, kind of our focus is all of us understanding that we are all missionaries, that we are all worship leaders in a sense, and God is sending us to our areas where we live, work, and play, and that's all by his design. I wanted to answer three basic questions this morning. What is our calling? How do we accomplish it? And how do we keep going? Out of uh, 1 Peter 2, I've used this text uh, even as recently as November. Didn't preach to it, but used it as kind of a supplement And Peter here gives us this just beautiful picture of what the church is supposed to look like. As the church being the, uh, as we are in a very post-Christian society now, and the church, the real church, the capital C church begins to stand in stark contrast to the world around us. At least I hope we do. In a similar way, this is what Peter was writing to the church First Peter 2, you are, verse, starting verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
Beloved, in verse 11, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, <coughs> excuse me, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There's a lot in this passage and we won't be able to cover necessarily all of it. I would encourage you to read the entire chapter. I want to answer this first question, what exactly is our calling? What is it? Is our calling just that we would gather on Sundays and sing some good worship songs? That we would hear a good message? Again, we would leave here a little nicer, maybe a little more uh, theologically oriented, that we would un understand things a little better. What is exactly our calling? And I love that Peter kind of starts out with this in this certain passage about what the calling really is, how it comes from our identity. The secret is not in what we do, it's in our shared identity, it's in who we are, the people of God, the people that God is transforming us into. First, he uses this uh, description of a chosen race. It was said even by the historians of the day that weren't Christians, that they began to call Christians a third race. At that point, especially from a Jewish perspective, there were the Jews and there was the Gentiles. There were just two races. You were either a Jew and you were God's chosen people, or you were a Gentile, you were on the outside looking in. And then Jesus comes, and he begins to minister to the Gentiles. You read through the book of Luke, the hero in almost every one of the parables that Jesus tells is a Gentile. And that just frustrated him so much, Jesus was painting this picture of really this third race. It's really not about where you're from. It's really not about Jew or Gentile. It's really not about slave or free, as Paul would later say. It's really... It's really about who your heavenly father is. If you're part of God's kingdom, this idea of this third race, this part of this new humanity, people being made into the likeness of Christ. We could spend all day talking about that. Again, we don't have the time to do that. The next description he uses is this idea of a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. We've been adopted into God's royal family. And now we are children of the very king of kings. Can you believe it? Can you imagine it? That we, dead in our own sin, separated from God, headed towards a Christless eternity, that God, in, in, and while we were sinners, right, he adopted us into his family. And it's not just any family, right? It's the, a royal family. But not just royal, but this idea of priesthood. The priests were the ones of a certain lineage that from the house of Aaron that would go and serve, right, in the, in the tabernacle and later in the temple. They were the ones that would uh, make uh, blood sacrifices on behalf of the people. And the high priest, we read about Zechariah as he was chosen several months ago when we were doing our Christmas series. Being chosen to go in and Make atonement for the sins of the people. That was the priest. They would communicate to God on behalf of the people. And now Peter is saying this, because of what Christ has done, we don't need to rely on a priest to do that. We are the priest. The temple of God is now inside of us. Today we think of priests and we think about the, the guys that walk around with the collars, right? As if to communicate to all of the world or the people that they're around, they interact with. 
If I want to connect to God, I go talk to him. And what Peter is saying, no, that's, that's everyone who is part of God's family, that we are priests. We're the ones connecting people to God. We're the ones talking about God. We're the people that are showing others the way to God. More than that, we're a holy nation. A nation is geographically divided by uh, boundary markers and made up of specific cultures and languages. But this, Peter says, would be a holy nation. Holy means set apart or separate. It would be made up of God's people whose boundary markers would be the globe itself, whose language would be that of sacrificial love, and whose culture would be one of humility, grace, and courage. Augustine, one of the greatest theologians, wrote a book called The City of God, and in it he describes the church as the city of God that lives within the city of man. That we should live in such a way, and we, we march to the beat of a different drum to say the least. We're a holy nation. These get more and more personal. Now he's talking about that we're a people of, for his own possession. You see that there are people for his own possession. This literally translated, this people have I formed for myself. He explains it a little more in verse 10, that we used to be strangers with little common ground, but God has made us family. God has made us friends. He says in verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What marks us as family, church? What makes us the people of God, that we've been adopted into God's family, that we have received mercy? And if you go back and look at this, even in the calling of Abraham and all this, this is what Peter's alluding to, that we used to be the no mercy people, that we had not received it, nor did we extend it. We had no mercy. And yet God adopted us into his family, and he made us the merciful people because he extended his mercy even to us we now can extend it even further. God has made us family. Our calling here started with the question, what is our calling? Our calling is to live out our identity here as God's missionary people. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Who are you? You are a child of the living God a disciple of Jesus Christ, perfectly loved by our Heavenly Father, your sin perfectly atoned for through the death of Jesus on the cross. But you weren't here just so that we could make some transaction and one day go to heaven. No, we're still here because God has work for us to do. You're here to make a difference. You're here to show Jesus to others. A God that saves. You're here as we just got through Christmas to show people Emmanuel that God is certainly with us. That's our calling. Next question, how are we supposed to accomplish this? If that's our identity, how are we supposed to be a royal priesthood? How are we supposed to be a chosen race? I love this in verse 9. This might be this just stands out, and I, and I encourage you to uh, wrestle with this text and memorize it. 
Verse 9 says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. How are we supposed to accomplish this? Really two ways. One, we proclaim the excellencies of Christ. In order to proclaim and talk about the excellencies of Christ, we have to ponder and remember and meditate on and sit with the gospel, beginning to discern how great God really is. I talked last week about this point exactly, that God wants your heart to walk in relationship with you, not just the things you do, not just the religious things and activity. He wants your heart. He wants to walk with you, to know you, for you to come to him and listen to him. Not just doctrine you believe, but a person that you know, that you walk with. And as you sit with Jesus, you begin to understand more fully who he is and what he wants to do in and through your life. And this begins to shape new patterns and rhythms of our lives. And it overflows out in everything else that we do. Have you given time just to think about and meditate on the sovereignty of God? Scripture says the Lord is in the heavens and he does what he pleases. That he's working all things together at the counsel of his own will. Think about that for a moment. That there's no one who can thwart his purposes. No one who can stay his hand. When he shuts the door, no one can open it. When he opens the door, no one can shut it. It says that the Lord established the boundaries of humanity. He tells people where they're going to live and when they're going to live there. Scripture says that he, he measures the galaxies with the span of his own hand. Can you even imagine this kind of God who is sovereign over all things? When we think about such things, at least when I do, the power of God, the omnipotence of God, that he is almighty, it makes my fears fall away. He's got this. And that hope and faith rise up in me, and I remember that he's got me. You ever spend time thinking about the love of God? The grace of God, his unmerited favor towards us. No, not when you feel like you're killing it. You're not, you're not, your heart's not full of gratitude then. It's when you've blown it. And you've seen the worst side of yourself. And you remember just your own depravity. You come face to face with it. This, just yesterday, me and my kiddos were talking about this in the car. They, the little scripture memory thing in the equipping hour is Ephesians 2. For it's by grace through faith that you've been saved. Not of your own doing. This is a gift of God. I asked them what their scripture memory verse was for the week. And both of them just spouted it out. And I acted like I knew exactly what they were saying. Yes. I began to ask them, do you guys know how powerful that verse is? It's by grace. That we didn't earn our way to acceptance to God. He wasn't picking people on the playground and saw our natural talent and be like, man, Luke is going to do great things for the kingdom. No, he saw me in the cesspool of my own sin. Dead in my own sin. Scripture says, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Can you even imagine the love of God toward us that he would bankrupt heaven to send Jesus and that Jesus would live a perfect life as the prophet said in the Old Testament, he would be like a lamb silent before its shears. As Jesus was, 
could have given a defense, could have walked away, yet he remained silent on our behalf. That is the grace of God. One of my kids asked me, Dad, are you crying? (laughs) No, it's allergy season, kiddos. Yes, I'm crying. Can you imagine what God's done for us? Well, we were nothing. He loved us. And it's not that we work to stay tethered to him. He stays tethered to us. Because if I know my own heart, it's prone to be selfish and proud. And I want to do things my way. And I want to choose a life of comfort and not difficulty. And I want to minimize risk, not take risks. And yet the Holy Spirit, his patience is still just working on me. You ever spend time just thinking about the grace of God? The one who loves us so deeply and rescues us in the mess that we're in and lavishes his loving kindness upon us. This is what fills our heart and overflows in our lives. This is what Peter is talking about proclaiming excellency. He's not talking about doctrine. He's not talking about that we lead with, hey guys, have you ever heard of justification and sanctification? And one day glorification? No, that's not the message. The message is that our heart is so filled with the overflowing joy that comes from a God who loves us perfectly, then we can't help but speak of his excellencies. Church, what has he done for you? What has he rescued you from? Especially if you came to Christ as an adult, you can can remember your life before and after him. Let me say this, what he's done in you, he wants to do through you. Not only do we proclaim his excellencies as how we accomplish this that he's called us to do, the second thing he mentions here in this passage is that we live a life of good deeds. I know that sounds very pious. I think it's deeper than that. It says in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. Peter's not saying this would be easy. But we should keep your conduct, he says, among the Gentiles honorable so that when we speak against you as evildoers, and they will, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This good deeds he's talking about, is, again, is not just being moral and nice. No, it means actively doing good. Where things are broken, we're, we're stepping into the brokenness, seeking to make them right. Where people are hurting, we're, we're trying to bring healing. Where things Where there's loneliness, we're bringing friendship. Where there's division, we're bringing reconciliation. Where there's confusion, we're bringing peace. On and on. That's how we are supposed to act. That's how the church is supposed to live. That we are doing good deeds. When people speak against us, we don't retaliate. These two work in concert together. We've talked about this. This is not new for you, I'm sure. This is what Jeff Vanderstelt in his book on gospel fluency calls a declare, a declare and display gospel. That our lives should be a gospel metaphor. People should know that we serve a God who reconciles, not because we talk about it in the Bible, but because the pattern of our life is one of reconciliation. Again, this is just not something that we believe. The gospel works from the inside out. And as we are connected to the vine we talked about two weeks ago, we begin to bear fruit in its likeness. I was talking to a pastor the other day who's in a similar season of, uh, of uh, pastoring a church as he's trying to continue to navigate his church to this more missional ideas of 
being God's missionary people. And he said to me, in a moment of weakness, I think, wouldn't it be nice just to come in to church and sing great songs and hear a great sermon and have rich fellowship and just go home for the week and just come home and do this all over again? Wouldn't it be nice not to have to set up the chairs and the curtains? Wouldn't it be nice maybe not to open your home to strangers? Yeah, that'd be nice, but it wouldn't be biblical. That's not what God's calling us to do. That would be just a social club. God's called us to so much more than that. William Barclay, a commentator, says it this way. A Christianity whose effects stop at the church door is not much use to anyone. Jesus did not say, you are the light of the church. He said, you're the light of the world. Just let that sit with you for a second. Did that not sting you as much as it did when I read it? Jesus did not say, you're the light of the church. He said, you're the light of the world. And in our lives and in the world, our Christianity should be evident to all. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Mount. What does he say in verse 14? You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. As we're connected to the vine and we begin to bear fruit in the likeness of Christ, the fruit is not for you. The fruit is for others. No apple tree just stands proudly because of the fruit. The fruit's not going to help the apple tree at all. It's the result, right, of being planted and being watered in the right condition. The fruit is not for you. The fruit is for those that are around you. What God has done in you, he wants to do through you. I thought I was really going to preach on the Mount of Transfiguration today, and I read it multiple times, and it's just kind of captured my thought and imagination in the past couple weeks of Peter, James, and John going up with Jesus onto the, the mountain. You remember this, right? And they get up top of the mountain, and all of a sudden there's Elijah and Moses. Well, that'd be, that'd be cool. Right, just uh, these people, certainly for the disciples that they had learned about, didn't know what they looked like, and there they are. And then it said Jesus himself was transfigured. God spoke from heaven over Jesus and says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. You remember what Peter's response was? It's the best. Like, hey, maybe I should build some tents. And we could just kind of stay in this, uh, in this show forever. Like, this is it. And Peter didn't, uh, Jesus didn't rebuke Peter. But you get the sense of what it is that Jesus is saying, listen, one day we're going to be in this state. One day when we get to heaven, when we get to glory, like we're going to live apart from sin with the supernatural presence of God and Jesus in his glorified body and, and Moses and Elijah, you know, kicking it with us on the streets of gold. Like one, one day. But that's not today. Today, Peter, we got to go back down the mountain. We got more stuff to do. We got, we got to go proclaim the kingdom of God again and again. 
Let me ask our third question as I lead to wrap up. How, how do we keep going? I think most of you understand this calling on your life. This chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, God's own people. We understand our calling. We even understand, we understand how this is supposed to work, that we're here to proclaim the excellencies of God and we're here to live a life in stark contrast with the world, one of good works. But how do we keep going? I want to go to the top of this passage in verse 4 to answer that question, how do we keep going? As Peter wrote it, he kind of put that in there first, how do we keep going? In verse 4, 1 Peter 2, he says, As you come to him, speaking of Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. How do we keep going? I think there's three ways that we can kind of continue to fill our tank, that we would be able to accomplish all that God has put before us. Through the power of his spirit. One is that we come to Jesus. It says that in the first little phrase in verse 4. As you come to him. But not just come to Jesus. You come to him and you find him precious. Look at that word it says. In the sight of God. Jesus chosen and precious. One of the problems with the church today. Is that we just don't find him precious. Valuable. Maybe we find him serviceable. Maybe we find him beneficial to us. Hey, Jesus, thanks for all that paying for my sin thing. We don't find him precious. I hope you're reading along with us in our scripture reading plan. There's nothing that kind of elevates the person, uh, the, the, the Godhead more than the Psalms. You ever notice how David does that, how he starts many of the Psalms out just like, uh, just weeping, crying his eyeballs out. And just like, you know, I'm, I'm, he even says, I'm going to drown in my tears. Like that's a bad night, okay? And then the last verse, the last refrain is always this, but God, but I, but God. But God, I remember your faithfulness to us and I remember your promise to me and I, I remember how you're working all around me. And I love that this is the theology book, the hymn book of the Jews, of the Israelites. These are the songs that they sang, not all just pretty songs. Songs of real life. David saying, God, I'm in a hole down here. What are you, are you just going to be quiet forever? Are you ever going to show up and help? And he would say, but God... But God, how do we keep going? We come to Jesus and we find him precious to abide with him, to sit with him, to have him speak to you. This is why we need God's word. This is why we need to memorize it and meditate on it. This is why we need other people speaking it to us. The culture that we live in tries to lie to us all day, every day about what our identity is and our calling and our nature but the word of God, it washes us, it reorients us, it reminds us of God's love for us expressed through Jesus. And it should grip our hearts again and again and provide fuel for us to continue going. We got to find Jesus precious. Matthew 13, 
Jesus tells this parable. I'm sure you've heard of it. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. We've got to find Jesus precious. Jesus says that's what the kingdom of God is like, that it's not something that we add to all the other stuff that we have, that Jesus becomes part of our portfolio. No, when we see Jesus for who he is in an increasing way, then we sell and forsake everything else that we may have gathered in order to get him, and we're not sorry about that. It says in this parable that with joy he goes and does that because Christ is of such surpassing value than comfort and peace and worldly possession, and anything else that we might see, we would sell all of that in order to have Jesus. I read a story this week about some Moravian missionaries. I don't know if you've heard anything about the Moravians. They were just this incredible group of people. They started an all-night prayer service that lasted 100 years. Can you imagine? What if I called us to an all-night prayer service tonight? And it would be uh, me and Jason, probably. Uh, and even us, wouldn't want, we wouldn't want to be here. <laughs> like, can't we just go home? They were serious about following Jesus. It's this, I, my heart has been so encouraged reading these stories of how they've done this and, and, how, and how they even came over here and started this. We're part, we're very instrumental in several of the uh, revival movements. There were these uh, Moravian missionaries who heard about this uh, British guy who owned several thousand slaves in the West Indies. And he was, uh, to say he was against Christ would be an, under, an understatement. This, uh, this British slave owner went as far as to saying, if a ship wrecked on this island and they were full of Christians, right, I would not let them interact with my slaves. I would kill them before they could, lest they share the name of Jesus to them. So these Moravians, these missionaries heard about this and their heart was so broken because of this as they began to pray for these slaves that were never going to have the chance of hearing Christ. They were moved to such a point that they sold themselves into slavery to this man for the rest of their life so that they'd be able to bring the gospel to these slaves. And as they were shackled and carried off to the ship and about to sail away. They said something to the effect that we hope that our obedience to Christ is a sweet aroma to him. Can you even imagine? That sounds so radical. But you know, as you read the book of Acts, that's pretty normal. That's normal when a person finds, them, finds Christ as precious. These men got it. They understood it. They found Christ so precious that selling themselves even into slavery so that others might know him paled in comparison to being free the rest of their life but disobedient. How do we keep going the next wave? One, we come to Jesus. Two, we live lives of interdependence. It says here in the passage, like living stones... 
As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones. I know we live in a hyper-individualistic culture, a hero culture. We think we can do it all ourselves, but that is not the story of Christianity. Like living stones being built into a spiritual house. This is what God is doing in us as he, as we're dependent upon one another. Think about a wall of stones and every stone above it is dependent upon the stone underneath it. And if the stone underneath it begins to wobble and shake and move out of place, the stone above it feels the effects of that. And that's the illustration. Paul would use the illustration of a body and how, how, how we're all part of that body. That we don't work individual as an individual, but, but as a body. We're to live lives of interdependence. More than that, we're to offer spiritual sacrifices. That's how he ends that passage. We offer spiritual sacrifices. A sacrifice is something that costs you something. The Old Testament spoke of sacrificial offerings as prayer and thanksgiving and praise and repentance. In addition to the material sacrifices that they would offer. But the New Testament speaks of sacrificial offering as faith in Philippians 2, of praise in Hebrews 13. And maybe the best explanation I think Peter's getting to here is found in Romans 12. Your very lives, your bodies as living sacrifices, he says. Most of the material offerings from the people would have been offered at the temple. Referred to as Herod's temple. Its construction limited all non-Jews from going inside. Remember, they had the court of the Gentiles. And once inside, no one could enter the Holy of Holies except the high priest on a certain occasion as he would give sacrifice for the sins of the people. The Holy of Holies, where God's presence was, no one could access it. When Jesus died on the cross making payment for your sins and for mine. The veil was torn from top to bottom, communicating that we all had access to God now through the person of Jesus. And here's where this is like, kind of lands into our neighborhood. Our lives as Christians will be pictures of the cross, radically welcoming people to full access to God, or our lives will resemble Herod's temple, radically excluding people with barriers and segregation. The cross welcomes, the temple excludes. The cross goes wide and deep, but the temple is shallow and narrow. The heart of the cross is to draw the far near, but the heart of Herod's temple was to keep people away. God calls us as believers to risk our lives, to risk ourselves, to align with the heartbeat, with his heartbeat for humanity. But that takes some work on our part. My invitation to you is to trust God by leaving the familiar and stepping into the unfamiliar. To risk your life, to risk your preferences, to risk yourself, to align with God's heartbeat for humanity, to make a difference that you were created to make in this world, to be a part of God's ongoing redemptive story. We're going to end a little differently today, and I'm going to pray for us here in a minute. 
And I pray that you would follow whatever God's calling you to do. For some of you, you need to step across the line of faith and place your faith and trust in him. Become part of God's family. That needs to be the decision today. Others of you need to repent that you've idolized your comfort or your safety. But I want to end today with this little invitation card. And uh, most of you got this when you came in. If not, uh, I think Matt and Jason have a couple they're going to pass out. I want us all to participate this in some level. And by participation, uh, y'all can go ahead. Just, if, you didn't, if you didn't get one of these, would you just kind of wave at them so they can hand you one of these cards? And you don't have to turn this in to me but, uh, uh, as the baskets pass. But, but I would love to hear what God has done and is doing in your life. This is just a testimony card. And as we've been radically transformed by the grace of God, I hope we can extend that grace to others. And this is a way that uh, just going to help you walk through what God's done in your life. And so we want to create a few minutes for you just to think. And you may have to think way back. This doesn't mean that this happened just at Covenant Church, but remember all that God's done for you. Check the boxes. You can put your name on it if you want. You don't have to. Maybe none of the little bullet points speak to you. Just write a testimony of what God's done in your life as you think, and maybe that would increase the gratitude of your heart and help you see a way forward that what God has done through you, what God has done in you, he wants to do through you. Let me say a prayer for us. I'll be in the back if you'd like to pray with someone. Give you a few moments there, then we're going to sing a few songs and we'll we'll be done. God, thank you for your grace and your mercy. So evident to us. Lord, the things that you have done in us and through us, Lord, your grace is so evident. Lord, I pray for Covenant Church. I pray for the next eight years. If you tarry and we continue, if your return tarries and we continue, that we would be a faithful witness to the beauty of the gospel in Shreveport and Bossier, that we would live lives of lives of great risk, if that's the call, that we would extend your beautiful gospel to the very edges of the earth, or that you would continue to do this incredible work in and through us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.